Hi everyone. Just to let you know, this month's episode will include discussion of sexual violence and slavery. Are you there, God? It's me, Michael. Specifically, Dr. Michael Hancock, postdoctoral researcher at the University of Waterloo's Game Institute. I'm also moderator for Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain comics and certain academics into madrash with each other. I'm only one-third of this trinity. On my right, we have... Uh, Andrew DeMann. Uh, I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. And on my left... Um, I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. As my divinely worded introduction may suggest, in this episode we're looking at two comics, both by writer Mike Carey, that feature protagonists who strike up a very personal, yet very different, relationship with their otherworld deity of choice. We have My Faith in Frankie, illustrated by Sunny Liu, and Volume 1 of Highest House, illustrated by Peter Gross. Later in the podcast, I'll also be reviewing the essay collection edited by A. David Lewis and Christine Hoff Kramer, Graven Images, Religion in Comics and Graphic Novels. Anna, will you begin the genesis of our discussion with an overview of My Faith in Frankie? So My Faith in Frankie is a four-issue limited series turned graphic novel written by Mike Carey with art by Sunny Liu and Mark Hempel. Publishers Weekly describes it as a, quote, delightful theological satire as romantic comedy. And that sounds just about right. Um, the story focuses on 17-year-old Frankie Moxon, her best friend and would-be more than friend, Kay, and Frankie's personal god, Jerevan, who's been protecting her since infancy after departing the realm of gods in search of meaning. He finds it in Frankie, whom he loves, so much so that he can't stand to see her with other boys. Jerevan never lets the passionate Frankie get past second base without lighting her suitor's pants on fire or sending an army of adorable, wide-eyed rabbits to kill the mood. The first time Jerevan slips up in keeping Frankie from her own desires, it nearly spells the death of all of them. Frankie's first, a sexy haircut and tight pants called Dean, was magically resurrected by Jerevan as a child but turned toward devilish causes in the day he spent dead, where he had the misfortune of being resigned to the fiery pits of hell. There's a lot of twists and turns in these four tight-paced issues, but the story climaxes thusly. Dean seduces Frankie to trick Jerevan into turning himself human, after which he's dragged down to hell to face the wrath of a demon once banished from the city of the gods by Jerevan's mother. Jerevan is saved by the bravery and resourcefulness of Frankie and Kay, and by his own faith in Frankie. The act of worship this comic suggests is a two-way street. Or maybe it's a three-way street. The comic ends with a glimpse into the future in which adult versions of Frankie, Kay, and Jerevan share a sunny California apartment and a happy polyamorous life. My Faith in Frankie maintains an impressive balance of comedy, pathos, and cultural critique without feeling heavy-handed or obnoxiously clever. As someone who's largely a stranger to YA fiction and has only really known Mike Carey through his X-Men work, I enjoyed this comic way more than I thought I would and look forward to discussing the intricacies of it with you guys today. And Andrew, could you give us the Sermon on the Mount for Highest House? I can. Uh, I want to preface my introduction here by saying that I have never felt that comics do this kind of fantasy well. The visual composition of the fantasy genre, which is all sweeping natural vistas, medieval architecture, and swole dudes in loincloths, of course translate very well to a visual medium. Uh, but world building is really tough. Exposition of mythology, politics, and economic infrastructure are not things that the average penciler can make much out of. Uh, and sometimes that burden of exposition can absolutely murder the pace of a story, unless you have a truly rare number of issues to work with such as in the case of Dave Sims' Cerebus or Jeff Smith's Bone. This is perhaps why some famous fantasy comics, such as Conan the Barbarian, actually do well in comics form. For as noted by Fritz Lieber, Conan's world has, quote, no more parts than a good diagram. There is no worry at all how it intersects the real world. It is an inner world for a boy's solemn adventuring, end quote. So that's often your choice when it comes to fantasy comics. Eliminate the world building or eliminate the excitement. This is my one-minute take on the comics fantasy genre, and you all enjoyed it very much. Now, 2018's Highest House, written by Mike Carey with pencils by Peter Gross, is somewhat of a rare accomplishment in terms of adapting a Game of Thrones-style fantasy into a comics universe. The world of Highest House is built up slowly, but gains traction and immersion with each subsequent reveal. The story centers on the titular Highest House, essentially a castle with a rich and mysterious history that our humble protagonist, a young slave named Moth, becomes very quickly embroiled in. Assisted by a demon buried deep inside Highest House, Moth achieves subtle powers of influence and protection that allow him to ascend from his station as a slave 
to become a major player within a complicated political conflict involving greed, power, sex, money, and yes, magic. As Moth continually improves his station, the reader is granted a new perspective on each social stratum that he becomes exposed to. This proves a highly effective way to control the world building of the story, since whichever stratum Moth finds himself on, he's new to it, and he thus serves as a perfect viewpoint character for the reader to embrace. Peter Gross's pencils effectively create a medieval aesthetic with a visual style that is somewhere between Hal Foster and Kevin O'Neill. It's dated, but on brand, and helps to immerse the reader in the sort of medievalist fantasy tradition that Carrie's story is so often riffing on. Gross's layouts are especially notable, however, through their use of nested panels, we might say in said panels, onto large background panels in a way that maybe most closely resembles the sort of visual textual experiment that we see in William Blake's Songs of Innocence slash Experience. Frequently, panels are framed by towers and ramparts of the castle itself, thus emphasizing the centrality of highest house within the narrative that unfolds, and giving the castle a kind of ubiquity that is both aesthetically beautiful and thematically functional, one that becomes all the more apparent in the final issue of our volume, which takes place outside the castle, where the absence of highest house creates a stark contrast to previous issues. For my mind, the natural comparison for highest house has to be Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda's 2015 series, Monstrous. And while there's a great deal of overlap, maybe even enough to glare judgmentally in Carrie's direction, Highest House is the more traditionalist of the two texts. Carrie's love for high fantasy works and tropes is all over the pages here, and his ability to translate that genre to the comics medium, with the help of Gross, is worth reading and worth discussing. We have literal adaptations of Game of Thrones and Wheel of Time to graphic novel format, but I would argue that Carrie and Gross come closer to capturing the essence of a George R.R. R. Martin or Robert Jordan-style fantasy story than even those more direct adaptations can accomplish. The book is not perfect. The nostalgia factor that I'm praising here actually leads to some notable problems, and we can talk about that. But Highest House is, to me, something that shouldn't work at all, and I think it does. So how did they do that? Following theologian St. Thomas of Aquinas, a medieval questio, or investigation of a text, typically follows the form of articulus, sed contra, and responsio. However, we're going to stick to our more common heretical approach with a free-form flow of questions and answers. Also, I promise this will be the last religion-based pun. Hand to God. This is the first time we've looked at two works for an episode with the same writer. Maybe a good place to start here is... What does it mean to look at these two works? What do they have in common? What, what are the advantages of looking at two works from very different points in a writer's career? Well, I think one of the important things that it does uh, in comic studies is it actually does call attention to the collaborative nature of the medium, mm. something which is frequently under-considered, especially in literary studies where we keep referencing that you know this book is written by the author. Um, so seeing Carrie work with uh, an entirely different creative team and a different publisher uh, I think it calls attention to all the extra work that everybody else is doing, which makes it kind of interesting. Um, but it also does that kind of cool thing of calling attention to how a writer changes themselves over different time periods and working within different genres uh, and seeing Carrie evolve. And, and Anna mentioned that her frame of reference was um, Carrie's work on X-Men. Same for me. I hadn't read anything yeah. else by Carrie. Well, I sort of want to push you on that sort of tourship question a little bit, Andrew, because you are doing a project about Chris Claremont right now. <laughs> so in a way, you're kind of pushing that auteur theory of comics a little bit with your work. Um, it's something that I find can be a productive approach. I mean, I'm suspicious of it because of its potential to replicate the same problem in film where it's not addressing the collaborative nature of that creative process right. as much as it could by trying to make it the work of usually a great man but um <laughs> but as you're saying you know it can draw attention to the collaborative nature as well when you're looking at um different works by a different author but different artists in different periods and at different publishers but what do you think like do you think that there's value in kind of that a tourist approach applying it to comics or not or does it depend on the creator because i was a little bit critical of that in charles hatfield's hand of fire book as well when yeah. we reviewed that a couple of episodes ago that almost isolating kirby in that way felt problematic at times to me mm. But yeah, what do you think? Do you think it depends on the creator or? Well, I think just coming back to like a broader literary studies approach, mm -hmm. we often talk about the author's voice. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't often define how that manifests. Yeah. Like sometimes it's the prose. Sometimes yeah. it's like um, structural components, pet phrases even. Um, all these different little things that sort of signify that this is... Claremont certainly has pet mm -hmm. phrases. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Claremontism. The word Claremontian is a yeah. thing. It, it refers to a style of writing. Yeah, so I, I think it, it's it's 
productive in the sense that we have a rich tradition of narrative analysis that we can apply to comics mm-hmm. using this theory. Um, but as you said, it's it's also slightly dubious because it, it doesn't account for um, the full collaborative nature of the project. And particularly, I think a little less with when we're dealing with works from uh, Image and Vertigo, but it, especially when you're focusing on writer illustrator, it sort of opaques the role that, or makes opaque the role that the editors play in like yeah. forcing a story yeah, in one way or another. And refining. Yeah, and just to um, bring it back to like my own project, the, um, the one of the reasons we're studying it is because it was a 16-year run. It's the longest mm. single author run in history, mm-hmm. uh, and even then, he's not the same. Uh, again, when you switch an editor and when you no. switch an illustrator, he becomes a different writer, mm-hmm. and I think that's how it should be. Um, so anything that calls kind of a, a attention to that, such as again looking at you know two books by Mike Garrett on an academic podcast, um, I, I think that's probably in service to the, the actual creative process. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. It's interesting because as much as these two books are very different, and as much as I haven't read that much Mike Carey, I felt that his voice did come across in both of them. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's just because I was reading them so close together. Because it's hard for me to pick out specific elements that. I mean when I'm saying that. I mean, the kind of impetus for picking these two for me is that mm-hmm. like, I just looked at it and like, oh, these are two stories about characters who strike up a very personal relationship with yeah, the god. Yeah, you're right. And it was the religion a, angle. That, yeah, yeah, and I mean, this is the guy that wrote like, what, 60 issues of yeah, Lucifer? Yeah. This is a topic that he delves into a lot. That kind of thing is what interests me on a like let's follow an illustrator or a writer in very broad strokes what ideas do they continually revisit and how does that change i think a nice logical next step here we've talked about what it means to study an author across a work let's talk about the factor that is different what do each of the artists bring to these respective works um so i think having um uh, a slightly dated style, uh, again, establishes the kind of um, nostalgic factor that medievalist fantasy is always trying to invoke. Um, so it, it's important thematically and tonally. It's also a little bit understated. We don't mm-hmm. get a lot of bombast. Uh, we, we don't have, you know, huge, massive splash pages. or. Although we, we do get some of the, the house or the action in the hunt, that sort of... Yeah, I think that that's where his visual artistry comes right. in. It, it's also a very um, cramped style. Mm. Uh, we have a lot of small panels right. uh, within um, the page itself uh, and um, a ton of dialogue everywhere. This is not a very visually driven story compared to, again, something like um, Monstrous uh, or even to some degree My Faith in Frankie. Uh, I feel like the, the images are largely in service to the text. And uh, Gross and Carrie have a pretty extensive history. They've had the entirety of Unwritten and... That book, I think, allowed Gross to do a few more experimental visualizations, like what's going to happen when you take some literalization of the concept of story. But the highest house, to me, is a writer and artist who know how to work together well. Yeah, it's very smooth. I do love the way he handles, or Gross handles, uh, scenes that are in the dark. I sometimes wonder, with a comic book like this, which is so, like, narratively focused... Is this a story that's helped by the imagery? Which I know is a Mm. dumb question. I mean, this goes back to Andrew's introduction. Would this work better as a novel? And Carrie's done, I mean, written novels. He's got a background. I mean, he is probably better known for that at the moment than his comic work. Because of the adaptation of uh, The Girl with All the Gifts. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I, I, I thought the art was nice on it and everything. I guess there were at times, though, when it's so text heavy that I was Mm. wondering in what way the art is necessarily serving that. And well, you know, when see, I'm a literature student and I've read more plays than I've watched plays. Mm. And I sometimes find it disruptive to watch the play just because I'm used to consuming plays as a text. And I almost wonder to what, when I'm thinking about a comic like this, I think to what extent could I read the script of this comic and get almost the same level of enjoyment that I could get from reading the comic of it. And I know that's an extreme thing to say because the artwork is great and we've been talking about it, but just like honest question, like how much is it contributing or not? Well, for me, I think the moments where the art particularly serves the world building are every now and then he they go into a kind of montage state. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the royal or the dinner with the lords where it pans over the table and we get little snippets of their larger life or the 
there's a few i think at least twice they juxtapose moth talking with the lord with him getting lessons from the lord's daughter Mm -hmm. and that's something that would be harder to do in say just script form that's a good example yeah, I sometimes wish that we had some more glimpses of the... I mean, we do have some good things with the architecture of the house, but mm. I actually wish we had more, which, you know, in our next episode, I know we're going to be talking about Chris Ware. Mm. So, but I mean, I almost wish that there'd <laughs> been just a little bit of sort of that diagrammatic sort of mm-hmm. approach to kind of dealing with this house as a metaphor, because I didn't feel like the art pushed that as much as it could have because it is such a text-heavy story. I wish there'd been just a little bit more showing rather than telling at times. I might disagree with you. Like strategically, again, thinking about um, how to make this work. Um, making Moth be a roofer. Yeah. The yeah. opening is brilliant because then he's exploring the city yeah. from above. Um, yeah. but, but at the same time, the city is supposed to be um, um, an enigmatic, mysterious, all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't think a layout would work very well. Like, like I think it has to be a little bit beyond comprehension in contrast to chris ware but i completely agree um i could have used more of um what we might call architecture porn mm-hmm. uh, well just like a little book. bit more because yeah i agree that making him a roofer seems like such a great choice in that respect and yet when i'm looking at these pages of him being a roofer a lot of the panels are quite confined sort of we mm-hmm. get sort of visions of very generic rooftops and not a yeah. sense of the uniqueness of this location as much as you would think you would get given that very deliberate choice well i, I think maybe the metaphor applies there because I, I, yeah. I don't think the panels are cramped i think they're stacked yeah they're bricks you know what i mean like, yeah. like he's building the story as he's building the walls of the city and describing it um so for me i was i think maybe forgiving that kind of um, yeah aesthetic desire for wide open space which again is especially important maybe in a fantasy text yeah to be this cramped isn't exactly fantastic but at the same time we're looking at the city as this intense sort of stacked place and we're also looking at moth as a slave so having um, a very um, um, um captive layout i think kind of i works. think you're being generous <laughs> i might be, i might be an apologist but as I, I really i liked a lot of the, some of these choices that were being made here as i was forgiving all the things that i wanted more of yeah because i thought there was Mm. a lot of service to the story in the way the visuals were unfolding and to me they read as pretty deliberate choices well i mean maybe a contrast there the last issue leaves highest house yeah does it really notice the difference yeah well it's we get uh, we don't get a lot of the forest but the forest parts that we see are properly very creepy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes the evil tree roots yeah Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess I just like, yeah, I didn't see it coming across as dramatically as I feel it Mm -hmm. could have sort of the panels being a representation of captivity or limiting his view in some way. I can see how that reading would seem to automatically apply, but... I don't know. It wasn't affecting you. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really getting that message across to me. And when, when I think about the first image that we have of Highest House, I did think that image was very impressive. I stopped for five minutes and looked at it and picked it apart. But I have a, pay, a spread open right now that has some of the usual sort of inset panels and then a wide view of the ocean and the city below with them standing on the roof. And I just, again, what comes across to me is how generic this city looks. It mm. could be sort of just any older European city, whether Eastern Europe or Western Europe. It's just very, I don't know. I just wish that there was like a little bit more of a definite personality in this image because yeah. the house is mm-hmm. such an important metaphor to the story that anytime we have a big wide view of it. That yeah, I, be I mean, really the fact that we're image. like oh, that makes sense. jumping back between house and city is kind of, it shows that it's not doing a good job of conveying this as a singular house. Wow, that didn't even occur to me because I didn't even get that like spatial orientation that we were going from those. See, because when he moves through the castle, it's, he seems like he can move so easily through mm-hmm. the castle. And I get that they're kind of writing that off as he's going across the rooftop so he has this unique access. But it's just like, man, he is like the least spied upon slave that like <laughs> there has ever been. He can just go out whenever he wants. Well, and the... I think it's also implied the castle itself is adapting to fit his needs. Oh, well, again, that's so generous because I didn't, like, <laughs> get that from the... Well, we obsidian, yeah, obsidian yeah. pushes it a few times. Yeah, but, like, we're just told that that happens. Yeah. I, again, don't feel that that was, like, conveyed with sort of the ongoing adaptation of the artwork in a way that I could see it have being done. Right. We could have sort of 
definite areas of the city that we recognize at the beginning and then when we're like in the next chapter those areas are different because it's adapting to him there could that could be represented visually in a it way would be, that... it would be fun if this was a more visual version of say house of leaves or something yeah but, i don't know i just i I, um, I think it was very sort of easy to read in that sense but again i didn't that's, I guess that's why I asked that question about the artwork, because yeah. I, I was sort of like, I get all the things you're saying and I don't disagree with you, but I, I again, feel like it could have been used more effectively thematically, I suppose, in okay. some of the style choices. Well, let's, uh, maybe it's time to shift over to our other text. <laughs> yeah, um, which is very different. Sunny, yeah, Sunny, what does Sunny Lou bring to My Faith and Frankie? Well, I mean, it strikes me as a very animation-inspired style, mm-hmm. which is... <sighs> This is always very essentialist when we start talking about this, but that can be a more appealing style to a female audience, which can be more used to cartoons than comics, which, again, I'm generalizing. Obviously, lots of us ladies read comics. I am one of them. But um, I certainly got that vibe from it. The thing that I liked about it was sort of... I don't know whether I'd call this sort of like an equal opportunity exploitation type of thing, (laughs) but, you know, it handled sex in a way that wasn't creepy. You know, it does sort of like cute like narrow-hipped boys but also depicts its women in a way that's like sexy but respectful Mm. i sort of liked that about it a lot and sort of that friendly cartoonish style with these plot elements that were sometimes quite serious like i have a page open now that's the page where after jerevin becomes human and falls to the ground in a splatter of blood (laughs) i don't know i found it quite effective the way that's rendered in as much as you wouldn't want that to be an overly disturbing image just because of the tone of this particular Mm -hmm. comic you wouldn't want this isn't a comic that's trying to upset you with an intrusion of reality and i I think it it impressed me that loose style could like fit this more grounded stuff at the beginning with yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but also by issue four we're in hell and Mm -hmm. it's a pretty good hell um, yeah it's not bad visually visually speaking yeah um and we've also got those flashback bits that are mm-hmm. done in a more cartoonish kind of Calvin and Hobbes type. Yeah, I was thinking Calvin and Hobbes and Peanuts. Yeah. I mean, more the style's more Calvin and Hobbes, but the kind of settings are more Peanuts. Mm-hmm. It's a very fun aesthetic. Um, it's also, I don't know how to describe it, almost like hipsterish. Yeah, a little uh, bit. Yeah. To harken back to that kind of art deco style and incorporate into a modern context. Well, I think that was very much the Vertigo style at the time. Yeah, do you want to speak to that at all, Michael? Because, I mean, you are the one that chose these, and speaking to Um, that Vertigo style of the era might be interesting to some of our readers who might not have read things from this era. This is a comic that has kind of a personal history for me, that this was the first comic I read as an adult that wasn't a superhero comic. Oh, that's Uh, interesting. So it was literally my first dip into vertigo and the context kind of came after that when i went back i read sandman i read a lot of sandman spin-off titles and mm-hmm. if you think um image is does a lot selling walking dead um <laughs> boy oh boy did they get a lot out of the sandman stone in the day like 70 issues of the dreaming and the spinoffs. And my understanding is that this is kind of the tail end of the Sandman sort of legacy. And I think it's got some tonally similar elements that it's story that let's take this uh, high concept, but also ground it in our characters. And you get something that's a little more rooted in teen angst than a lot of the superhero stuff was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in teen angst in a very sort of humanizing way for all the series like humor I felt like there was like a real humanity that came through that I was really impressed by can I also say that I was really enjoying that this was a four issue limited (laughs) series that didn't feel too long or too short I just felt like it really (laughs) tied up nicely it was exactly how much I wanted I wouldn't want 12 issues of this I wanted four and there are Mm -hmm. four well even yeah even highest house is a little you go back to read it and like, yes, this this feels like six, six issues. It covers a lot of ground, but it is long. Yeah, again, so many, so many panels and so yeah. much, so much dialogue. And ends and we can talk about this more, but ends in such a way that I'm not sure how I feel about these six issues because it kind of depends on how they're going to mm-hmm. resolve yeah. the problem yeah. that they bring up at the end of it. Because yeah, I, yeah well, that's <laughs> keeping me in limbo a little bit. But we'll we can get, get to, to that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's interesting that. Both of these books are 
maybe saying they're about religion is uh, overstating it, but both of them pose a relationship between their protagonists and the supernatural. And maybe a good talking point is to compare how these relationships play out and how they're different. I think the connective tissue here is the idea of religious assistance. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the relationship in Highest House with the deity or demon or Jack Kirby monster uh, <laughs> is very um, ambiguous. We don't know if it's going to lead to you know this thing we've been manipulating him the entire time, deal with the devil kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Jerevan relationship is much more intimate and personal right. uh, in the sense that they're interacting with him. But in both cases, it's this this fantasy, literally, of mm-hmm. having this religious deity watching over you because you are special. Uh, and it wants to protect you. So it's it's really self-aggrandizing. It kind of reminded me of, I mean, I've already brought this up, but our previous episode on Calvin and Hobbes. Um, I mean, Hobbes doesn't guardianship over Calvin, really, but the idea that there is this being that you alone have this special relationship with and who bonds with you in a way that I came very close to comparing imaginary friends to God there. So let's, let's, I'm going to pass it to you. Oh, wow. I just that one over to me. Well, I mean, but I guess I would spin that into like, what, if any, is the critique of organized traditional religious practices that's going on in either mm-hmm. of these texts? Mm-hmm. Because it's not that I feel that that's necessarily heavy handed in either of these texts, but it's certainly present. I mean, in my faith in Frankie, the idea that, it's a personal God that she has a, a friendship kind of evolving relationship with and eventually a romantic relationship is with is obviously, you know, undercutting even the presumptions that are brought up at the beginning of this comic where <laughs> Jerevan's protecting Frankie's purity by not mm-hmm. letting her have yeah. sex. And that very much devolves by the end of the comic into this, you know, threesome kind of relationship between Kay and Frankie and Jerevan. So there's something very deliberate going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also... I don't know. I'm undecided, though, about sort of the, the critique of religion present in that. I, I, well, I, as, as someone who's not religious and wasn't raised religious, I sometimes am confused by the insistence on bringing religion into stories, which I understand because those who were raised in that background, if they no longer believe in that, um, often emerge with a lot of questions and issues that need to be worked through. Um, We could probably spend many episodes going through Carrie's Lucifer in this aspect. In terms of my faith in Frankie, uh, it's interesting that I don't think it addresses Christianity specifically, but it does establish that when Jerevan first comes to Earth, he doesn't find anyone faithful because no one believes that the world has become so secular that there isn't any faith until he looks at that little baby. Yeah, see, I didn't really like that that much. Oh, I... I mean, it's sort of, that sounds a little bit too much like the paranoid fantasies of people on the religious right that they think mm-hmm. everybody's become secular when in reality <laughs> 70% of people identify as Christian or whatever. People have not gone secular. Mm-hmm. It's still way more unusual to be an atheist than to be religious so that's a bit of an overstatement yeah but was his loss the product of people being irreligious or the process of um transitioning from paganism yeah that's what i was wondering too well and Mm -hmm. i was wondering what i wasn't really sure if there was a bit of orientalism going on in terms of the depiction of Mm -hmm. jerevan and the depiction of sort of like that pantheon or not there was sort of a lot of kind of different kind of it's an interesting choice that there aren't any any like there are recognizable types of gods, but not recognizable gods. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, if it's supposed to be that idea, then how does this idea of like a personal god fit in with that? I feel like I'm kind of losing the thread of like what the kind of metaphor mm-hmm. is here. I don't know. I think there's a lot of consideration for that in a lot of contemporary religions, including Christianity, just the idea of your personal relationship with the god mm-hmm. that you subscribe to, right? Well, and actually, the more I think about it, that does fit in with the pantheistic thing, too, in terms of being able to choose which god kind of yeah. represents you. So even though it wouldn't necessarily be personal, it would be a small community sort of choosing to erect a temple to a particular god, that kind of thing. So I guess that that is kind of represented with Frankie's relationship with Jerevan. I mean, it's difference from organized religion because she's picking a personal, well, personal savior is a way that people want to do Jesus as well. But I, I do love the scene with the six-year-old and her little altar. And yeah. That's, yeah, very cute. Yeah. <laughs> But her personal relationship with God ends up being sexual. Uh, yeah, which I think is that? the main... Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll get to it in the <laughs> review, but there is a pretty good essay uh, in the collection I'm looking at on uh, the Christian erotic. So. Okay. 
oh wow the christian erotic obviously has a long history i mean yeah. the first like female fan fiction is like jesus born <laughs> like for sure i mean if you were like a lady poet in like the 17th century the only like sexy thing you were allowed to write was jesus born and it was great because you were in love with jesus so it's fine describe his sexy feet and the way the blood trails down his chin and oh the way he like licks his dry lips in the heat of the sun as he's lying on the crucifix so hot Maybe this is a good time to go to highest house. Highest, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Again, um, for me, this was like a shark moment in, in Jaws, where well, once I saw the god Obsidian, mm. I was like, "Oh, that's just a Jack Kirby monster." <laughs> it, I didn't like of, the reveal of him either. Kind of I ruined it a little like bit that. for me. But the idea of the you know mysterious mm. thing in the mysterious house that only you have access to, and that you're the only one who can kind of bring it back to the world but it's also um possibly manipulating you and demands fealty from you and all that kind of stuff i thought it was a good manifestation of um the duality in again christianity of the god and the devil mm-hmm. uh, and that idea of um uh, fundamental like temptation which i thought was really interesting his relationship to obsidian either makes him heroic because he's the only one who can set free this poor creature who's been locked up uh, or his relationship with Obsidian is um, him being a stupid child who's naive and easily lured into, as I said, a deal with the devil. As we already intimated, like, we don't know yet. Uh, <laughs> we've only read volume one. This is a relatively new text. But I, I'm intrigued to see how it'll unfold. But for me, I think that'll ultimately decide how and this relationship works. I appreciate the ambiguity of that, that it isn't. Yeah. Well, we'll get into some of the issues with Highest House, but the idea that Obsidian is both extremely powerful, but extremely bound. Yeah. Um, shades of Aladdin, I guess. Well, there's a lot of... I like the idea that perhaps what's really being represented in the relationship with Obsidian or the character Obsidian in general is that when you're dealing with whatever, like religious cosmic forces, whatever, good and evil might not actually apply because these forces are so far above our comprehension because any interpretation of the Christian God, I mean, from my perspective, in a lot of those interpretations doesn't seem like someone I would want to worship because Mm -hmm. seems kind of evil to me. (laughs) I mean, someone who is okay with punishing people and doing things like that is not someone I want to believe in and setting all these strict rules that don't seem ethical. So I mean, kind of bringing in that, you know, malleability of, of the cosmic force that it could be either good or bad and maybe (laughs) maybe what's wrong about the human's relationship with it is choosing to interact with that force at all thinking that you can have power within that relationship but when you're giving up an aspect of your free will to that type of force regardless of whether that force is good or evil that might not even apply but that applies to Jerevan as well right because he is domineering and controlling yeah Yeah. which is I think a problem with the relationship in my faith in Frankie well um that kind of pushes us towards a question another topic that i wanted to discuss the way that relationships are framed in both of these works that Mm -hmm. my i'm going to present my grand theory on highest house that highest house is essentially asking over and over again what kind of a relationship can you have with someone who holds power over you right and we see that in Extat, who selects him as a slave, but also has his own relationship with Obsidian. We see it with Obsidian. We see it with Moth and the Lord uh, Domini. We see it with him and like basically every character. There's this question of what does it mean to be in a relationship with this person? What control do they have over me? What control do I have over them? Yeah, I think it's it's a nicely universal argument too, right? Because there is no relationship where you don't have power over someone or they don't have power over you. Uh, And I think it is nice that we're, as you said, exploring it through these different um, characters to varying degrees of power and influence. Um, So we're kind of seeing it all along that kind of spectrum. I guess we can talk about relationships in My Faith and Frankie too. Um, The character of Kay is an interesting one there. I mean, what do you make of Kay? Um, The character of Kay, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I didn't... Frankie's the character I had the most issue with. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of, uh, she's a little bit of a manic, manic pixie dream girl, if people are familiar with that term and convention, um, in the sense that she's very glorified in terms of her passion, in terms of her beauty, in terms of her resourcefulness, in terms of her, you know, all of these things that are appealing to her, to all of these other characters. And Kay is in love with her, and mm-hmm. Jerevan is in love with her, and yeah, Dean manipulates her. Yeah, there's a bit of... 
there's a little bit of there's something about Mary to yeah. her. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's even it's a theme of the comic though that she is perfect and untouchable because mm-hmm. Jerevan has made her that way too. So there is a bit of a creepiness of in terms of her being his creation at least a little bit which mm-hmm. like brings up some of the problems with the controllingness of Jerevan as a character and her kind of falling in love with someone who is that controlling what i would really have liked to see is a scene that a stat i mean the defining trait we're told about her is that she is very into romance mm-hmm. let's see that established outside of Jerevan in particular yeah. Yeah, and it's also established in the text that um Jerevan's influence on her has made her like immune to a sense of danger mm. yeah which is what interesting does that do to a person, yeah right yeah i mean what is kind of the idea of love that's being conveyed in, in my faith in frankie it is maybe not that positive depending it's obsessive, on at least, um, yeah right? well yeah it ends in a better place at least that like yeah. these characters can't have a relationship until they like just talk to each other about yeah, what they want yeah but it's sort of that problem with frankie of you know Kay confesses that she's in love with frankie and frankie's like oh cool and yeah. that's just fine and it's like yeah. well I mean sexual desire is a spectrum but it's very complicated <laughs> yeah, about you whether not, you might be interested you have in not shown not. any of this up until, yeah, yeah and I mean that's great but I mean it's sort of Frankie does what everybody wants I mean I feel like it would have made a little bit more sense as an ending for the comic to it's not set up this way properly because of Frankie not showing that same sex desire at all but for it to be kind of set up that Frankie and Kay go off together and Jerevan is kind of mm-hmm. put to the side I mean, or at least encouraged to go on his own journey to kind of figure out some of these issues that he has, because I don't know, like there is a suggestion of character growth with him, you know, with he like becomes human and he Mm -hmm. gets punished and he has to kind of like reckon with some of the consequences of his behavior like a little bit. But again, it's four issues, too. So I'm like, I think it handles like some of that progression, like quite well, given the nature of the Mm -hmm. comic. Yeah. At the same time, like, love being framed as religious and obsessive and Mm -hmm. uncompromising in a lot of ways is not... There's a bit of a darkness to that that I'm just sort of like, hmm, I don't know. I mean, there is reciprocal power, though, we should point out, that that Mm -hmm. Jerevan's existence does depend on Frankie. That's true. That's a good point. That's a good point. Which is another connection with highest house that mm-hmm, right, right. The, the, there has to be some level of reciprocity or or the relationship isn't there and yeah. i like that point that you brought up though about my faith in frankie because i i even brought that up in my intro and then i like forgot about it but just you know that idea that it is like worship has to go both ways in order for you know that sexualized theological relationship to work out so right. i'm glad that you brought that up but I mean, that's one of that's one of the ways that it's sort of like subverting conventional religion, right? I mean, the yeah. worship kind of going both right. ways and kind of trying to humanize that relationship with God in a very direct way. Yeah, I should just to be slightly historical, and I'll preface this by saying that I'm I'm not religious either. But um, there's maybe a comparison in these two texts between um, New Testament and Old Testament God. Mm. Uh, Old Testament God being on high and distant and indifferent and not super duper nice. Uh, <laughs> and the New Testament God being the version of God who walks the earth and really mm-hmm. likes you and thinks that, you know, every life is special. Um, I don't think we do anything at all with that. And now I'm sad that I brought it up. No, I liked it. <laughs> well, for our comics reading friends who might not be religious, like that time that Superman lost his powers and went wandering around, which sucked, or that time <laughs> oh, that Green Lantern and yeah, yeah. or that time Green Lantern and Green Arrow decided to go for a, on a journey across America <laughs> to see all of the world's problems and dealt with racism very ineffectively. So you know that From can be your point of context. It was very effective. Yes, well, yeah, they got to feel a lot of uh, straight white man feelings, mm. so that's what matters. Yep. Andrew, you brought up a little while ago, and we sort of got off off track of it. I'll, I'll just assume that I got us off track of it, but <laughs> that you were talking about um, power within relationships in Highest House, and that it sort of brings up the concept of, you know, in any relationship, someone's going to have power over someone else in some respect. But that almost gets us to talking about, we have to talk about the slavery metaphor in it, right? And what it does for us, whether it works or not, how yeah that theme of power within that within that metaphor yeah i think in my intro i mentioned that um the 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 fantasy that that carrie's working with here is um uh, atypical for the comic genre and is a little bit more immersive and political and has things like infrastructure and stuff like that Uh, but it's still um prone to falling back on tropes Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally in a a negative way Uh, we could briefly discuss that the the cook was not the best character is not a character we haven't seen before kind of thing um, so I, I think 
having the hero as the slave is a really good way to set up like the the underdog but also the champion of the oppressed which he is he's, he's mm-hmm. quite literally a liberator of slaves which we, we've seen a lot he's, mm-hmm. he's moses uh if we want to fall into another religious kind of paradigm he's the mother of dragons he's the mother of dragons slash moses <laughs> and i think it it works it like it's an effective way to do it um, but it has to be handled well and with a certain subtlety of touch that I'm not sure is always there. Okay, well, Michael and I were talking about this a bit yesterday. So, you know, I know that everybody loves on a podcast when you talk about a conversation you had <laughs> off mic earlier. Mm-hmm. But um, what are the racial dynamics of the representation of slavery in this comic? And I mean, it's interesting that in some of the sort of cover artwork, like moth skin is done a little bit darker than it is um, within Mm -hmm. the comic, which I thought was an interesting choice. But Mm -hmm. also, for my part, I'm not sure whether it's responsible to tell a story about slavery within a North American context and not have it be centrally about black protagonists. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about why I feel that way, but just because although there are obviously many other historical examples of of slavery and contemporary examples of slavery um, not involving African Americans, within that context that's the dominant frame of reference for slavery and to exclude from that? Yeah, it it becomes the second that you start like thinking about that you think about just how few black characters there are in the series Mm -hmm. and that it becomes like, well I mean we talked about the one who is there are a few in the lords but the one that really gets featured is a character who is largely thanks to uh, moth drawn into slavery which Mm -hmm. is um something yeah i I think there's a really rich tradition in comics history of appropriating civil rights um images and tropes and patterns uh, and ascribing them to a white protagonist um so we're maybe doing that um I want to continue my thread of apologizing for this text and say that maybe the European context of medievalist fantasy helps a little bit with the concern you're bringing up that we're, we're not working with that. But I know how foolish an argument that is when you start to interpret it from how it actually was versus how it's perceived. Well, I guess it's just, I could say a little bit more about why I think it's problematic. It's just because there's so many narratives within kind of like... Mm, you know, wanting to like defend slavery in the American context of like, well, all these different cultures have had slaves. It's not specific to our context, right. you know. Mm-hmm. Like my ancestors were enslaved too in ancient Greece or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I'm Irish, so my ancestors were slaves too, right? And most of those gestures are an attempt to diminish yeah. what American yeah. slavery and, was. And fantasy as a genre is so frequently used in that escapist, well, we don't have to talk about black people at all. Yeah, and I think when we talk about that um, appropriative tradition, we're really talking about selling the satisfaction of appeasing guilt, Yeah. right? Uh, so it's not just a thing that's manifest in the story. It, it's actually commodified uh, to some well, degree. And I, I, mean, I, I can't get around that. The frame that it's presenting, at least in that final issue, is that the way that they're going to be moving out of this is the transition from a dependency on metal-based currency to paper currency so basically (laughs) it's saying the solution to slavery is capitalism which is i'm pretty sure not historically accurate well again like that's why i'm just wondering where the series is going to go after that and i don't feel like i can really comment on that until now i would be very surprised if that wasn't represented in a highly critical way later on only because the development of the money economy is so essential to our very flawed conceptions of individuality and subjecthood Mm -hmm. you know the contemporary idea that we have of that is so based in your ability to sell your services and receive money mm-hmm. compensation for those things so we move from a religious society to a monetary society in terms of our fundamental concepts of subjecthood and individuality but that's obviously bad if we accept that capitalism is not an all good all knowing religious force which i think most of us can agree with i don't think that's a super controversial thing to say but i mean getting back to the the, the slavery angle too i mean just in terms of in addition to the problematic of it excluding African-American experience, it being something that exists within that context and, 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 and not discussing that or excluding it, or the representation of the mechanics of slavery too, I had mm. some issues with. Mm. I mean, it doesn't seem that bad would be my number one critique. 
it matters whether it's depicting an indentured servitude or slavery. There are differences between these things mm -hmm. that matter. Yeah. And it's a bit muddy. I mean, these slaves in this context can earn their freedom by doing certain things. And, like, they sometimes receive um, money and did favors. You, and... There's a text bit in the back that goes mm -hmm. into this a bit more. Yeah. I think it establishes that Domini does in this culture does a lot more of that than anyone has done in decades. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it also gives him a hero edit for well, setting his slaves free. Well, I think <laughs> which is also Domini problematic. is interesting in that regard that um, so we're established he's, that... Yeah, uh, he's the king of yeah, the highest house, basically. Yeah. yeah. And it's established at one point, I think around issue five, that uh, he murders another lord who attempts to take over the castle and he forgives and the son of that lord tries to kill him and he basically shows the son mercy like the next issue mm, he is he threatening I'm gonna, yeah which is an obvious iliad reference yeah uh here reversed in the iliad you have the father beg for the body of the son back uh, and achilles is a hero because he says yeah okay uh, and, right. and here the king just says no <laughs> you can't have it but even like depicting a slavery context that's sort of distanced by those like mythological reference points, mm -hmm. like that's almost part of the problem well, I'm having with it. Though. I mean, where I'm going with this is in the next issue, he's like, yeah, if I don't get what I want and get this money thing under control, I'm going to destroy this forest, take away the livelihood of all these people. Yeah. And like, mm -hmm. you people don't matter. I can forgive the this new lord. You other people you are mine it doesn't matter at the same time though that like kind of come like i get how that's effective as a twist on that character because he was set up to be like kind of a benevolent dictator in a lot of the earlier issues mm -hmm. and the sort of that turn to see how ruthless he really is is effective and yet that doesn't erase like the five no. issues of him as like a benevolent dictator in mm -hmm. which like he's illustrated as a very kind of like attractive likable character in a lot of ways which is a very dangerous way and to do a slavery it'll story. be again this is something that it'll depend on where the series goes because i mean his goals are very much clearly in conflict with moths in yeah. the long term One of the more disturbing aspects of both of these works is that they include scenes of sexualized violence, and I think it's important that we touch on that briefly. Yeah, okay, so Highest House features an attempted rape scene, um, a rape of Moth by this very <laughs> exaggeratedly evil Cook character who is abusive towards the people in his little fiefdom of slaves um, and specifically hates Moth and catches Moth on a rooftop and attempts to rape him in a very disturbing scene. Um, we get kind of a close-up of uh, Moth's face responding to what seems to be being penetrated by the cook. Um, I really had issues with the depiction of this scene. I mean, I had issues sort of going to the trope of sexual violence to illustrate the evilness of a character. It's a, just a very reductive demonstration of someone's evilness. And I mean, again, it gets back to some of the issues I had with the slavery metaphor, right? It's like, slavery is evil in so many complicated, nuanced ways. When you go to the trope of sexual assault, it flattens those things. And it also always has the danger of making it seem that sexual assault only exists in the bodies of certain monstrous individuals and mm -hmm. not as a modus operandi within a patriarchal society, a misogynistic society, within a slavery society. If people are objects, then presumably everybody's getting raped all the time. And yet, by having this dramatic rape scene of this one character in this one instance by the most dramatically evil character in the comic, it makes it seem like he's the only person guilty of that. But presumably there can't ever be consent in this world, given that everybody is owned. Mm -hmm. And I would like to see more of that concept explored rather than rape only existing in this one evil character. And then the depiction of the scene, like, you know, it's quite an exploitative kind of depiction of it in a lot of ways, just in terms of that close up on Moth's face being quite disturbing. I mean, we're talking about child rape here, too. Mm -hmm. um, so the decision to, to depict it in that way, I found a little bit questionable. But I don't see that it has a lot of purpose. 
Yeah. Yeah. Story, I mean, like, I don't see what it accomplishes. Well, see, it just seems super, shocking super for shock, evil. right? Yeah. yeah it, Which it, is the, it, always the problem of when you're going to the trope of rape. If it's going to be shocking for shock and not going to be investigating that trope, then why are you doing it? Yeah. Right. And, and if it's never going to come up again. It was, yeah, yeah it was pretty clear that he was going to attempt to murder Moth. Then yeah. th- that's enough. Yeah, I know. Like, to have to also sexualize the violence is just like, what did you do that for? Like, just for shock? Like, again, if you're not going to work this into a more complicated discussion of the role of sexual violence within the inherent violence of the society, why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. And it's not even raised again when the character reappears. Yeah. Yep. And there's no suggestion that Moth is particularly traumatized by it either. We don't even get sort of a payoff of, like, that being integral to the way that he's understanding his own disenfranchisement in the slavery society like that he's a sexual slave as well as a physical slave that he's subject to different types of violence um, and that specific actually a similar thing uh it it reminded me that there is one similar thing to this uh, mm-hmm. moss's or, or moth's sister oh i think maybe we should pause on the, the yeah. scene itself just because one of the things that we should maybe articulate here is the amount of like coding going into this this cook mm-hmm. so we've got sexual violence he's a rapist mm-hmm. he's a villain mm-hmm. we've got pedophilia because mm-hmm. uh, moth is a child but we also have homosexuality yeah uh, being villain coded mm-hmm. pretty hard yeah here. yeah uh, which is again problematic well i mean there is another representation of homosexuality in there this is. story that, is... that doesn't have that same yeah. kind of coding um here it does though and, yeah and i really like what anna was saying i, I think the, the greater problem that this kind of work does culturally uh, is it sends the message that rapists are mustache twirling villains that you yeah. can see a mile yeah. away yeah uh, and that's that's not the majority of sexual violence in, yeah. in our culture at all well, let's talk about the thing with the sister then. Um, so uh, Moth has this sister, Jet, who is going blind when we first meet her and is blind when we meet her later. And she has... So the mother tries to sell both Moth and Jet into slavery. Um, they won't take Jet because she is going blind. So Jet is left at home and becomes a prostitute. Um, her mother puts her into prostitution um, and then is eventually rescued by Moth's boss in the slave hierarchy whom he frees after he's offered his own freedom but he gives her her freedom instead and she goes and rescues Jet from that situation. So with that character of Jet you do have a little bit of an exploration of sort of sexual violence being pervasive in this society but again it's just like it being confined to that kind of like one situation it doesn't mm-hmm. improve it necessarily oh, no. to me other than it yeah. also felt shocking and kind yeah. of like exploitative in like such a because again it's sort of the same problem right like if you're going to talk about sexual violence you're talking about a case of just like a radically evil mother who's like putting her daughter into prostitution and we see like such a like heavy tropey like you know like exaggerated image Mm -hmm. of like jet in rags on the floor with the mother who's just like treating her like a dog and again that's not the usual nature well, I mean, of most sexual violence and in our society like either. probably a really negative part of this is that it, this is presented for the impact it has on moth that moth goes yeah. to jet and be like i'm gonna yeah. rescue her yeah. and then finds out that she she was rescued yeah. because he helped out his other friend earlier yeah. Yeah. so yeah. it becomes like oh this is how you become a this is really how you become a hero moth and this is textbook frigid yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really really clearly um i have a couple points on this the first is problematic um there's this stereotype of the ruined woman yeah uh the lost innocence and she's ruined and i thought it was therefore problematic that lost or that that moth learns that um his sister has become a prostitute and shortly thereafter gives up on curing her blindness because Mm. he takes the the magic thing i'm sure that's coincidence and and not trying to do that but it kind of falls into that trope a little bit like like, i don't need to cure her blindness now because she's already been destroyed uh, even Mm. though she's still alive but then on the other side of that i kind of like that that afterwards jet is not defined by that experience probably she, going to live a she looks pretty happier or at the moment she seems to have a happier life than he does yeah and i don't think that's necessarily disengaging with um the consequences and the trauma as we were talking about earlier um but again showing that she's not defined by the sexual violence that she was she was put through to some degree i think it's often 
It's illustrating though sort of often one of the problems just of like representing female characters within these kind of medieval fantasy whatever settings as well that people just fall back on like well women must have just been so like manipulated and so like mistreated during this era that you know their only involvement in the story is going to be as victims of rape and the best we can hope for them is that they get rescued by a nice husband and like get to settle down in the country somewhere. Because the only women that are exempt from those narratives are going to be highborn women who are not really exempt mm-hmm. from them. And we have the, you know, <laughs> oh, I'm not exempt from it either because I have this arranged marriage and blah, blah, blah. And those are like the only two types of women that we have in this world. And it is very difficult to get beyond those tropes unless you're going to do a really mo- much more radical re-envisioning of the gender roles within this type of generic environment. Yeah, and coming back to fantasy tropes. Exactly. The, the idea mm-hmm. of, again commodifying sexual violence against women mm-hmm. under the guise of so-called historical accuracy exactly mm-hmm. uh, that that's a problem and i, I think highest types might fall into that because i mean are you representing that in a way that's getting us to understand it in a more complex way that we can you know <laughs> use or are you just like using these tropes for yeah. like quick storytelling cues you know and uh, it's falling a little bit more than the latter to my mind but mm-hmm. yeah we could talk about the attempted sexual violence scene in my faith and frankie as well although well my faith and frankie so dean the evil character you know who frankie knew as a child and gets resurrected by jerevan because jerevan fails to save dean in the boat crash so dean's evilness is kind of jerevan's well, fault does anyone who dies in this world go to hell or did this eight-year-old do something particularly yeah, what, what bad? That's, see, that's not really explained. It suggested that he was a shitty kid anyway. Yeah. And that's like this this eight-year-old has done some bad it. stuff. Yeah. So anyway, but the so the Dean character, you know, obviously has sex with Frankie under false pretenses and everything. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a sexual violence component there, um, mm-hmm. although it's, you know, very much in a, in a fantasy setting of him being sort of demonic and whatnot. But when they when Kay and Frankie journey to hell to save Jerevan, you get Dean threaten Kay with sexual violence. He drops his pants and the suggestion is he's going to rape her, I guess. It's sort of depicted in kind of a weird way. And, you know, we get the typical <laughs> subversion of that, of her, like, she ends up getting him in the nuts with the lawn trimmer, right? Yeah. Which That's is... what ends up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty so high violent level. <laughs> yeah, that's probably like, you know, the most high violent kind of thing from this comic. Um, but I didn't like that going right there either, because I mean, mm-hmm. it's again, like one of those things where it's like, there's so many different ways that you can express the evilness of that character. Why, I mean, like, yeah. insert that? What you, what it felt like they were trying to do in that moment, let's get give Kay a heroic moment where she does something to help plot and she's not going to be much good fighting <laughs> demons but but Dean the reductiveness be... of expressing expressing female empowerment by like kicking guys oh, in the nuts, and it's castration. not great. Yeah. It's not great. Um, I was just teaching an instance of that from the 2006 Ms. Marvel series where Carol Danvers' empowerment is expressed in the very first issue by her blasting a guy in the nuts and talking about what a shallow version of feminism that is and how disappointing it is compared to the 1977 version of Ms. Marvel, which is saying something. <laughs> so it's not a trope that I love. Yeah. I don't have a fantasy in part in terms of my representation of female strength of, of castrating men or kicking them in the nuts that's not really going to solve my problems i think maybe coming back to the, the comparison to highest house um it's really totally inconsistent yeah uh, that particular scene yeah it is i know that's what struck me about it and it gets us back almost to that auteurship question because Right. reading yeah. these in concert I was almost like oh that's a Mike Carryism now because he used rape irresponsibly in the one text and he's doing it again here yeah. so <laughs> that was one of the aspects of his auteur touch that I did <laughs> notice which is unfortunate yeah I think most of us would agree it's it's, it's lazy characterization yeah Alright, I think we will bring our discussion to a close with one last question. How do these two texts function as coming-of-age stories with their respective teen protagonists? So I'll start by saying a couple of words about my faith in Frankie in that respect. Um, I did like it as a coming-of-age story. It was another one of those ones where I really wonder how I would have responded to it as sort of a teen reader, which I could see that it's, it's geared towards, although I enjoyed it as not a teen reader as well. I liked that it had those elements of fun that kind of took the pressure off of some of those, you know, like 
it was one of those stories where the journey is to get outside of boxes and to just sort of like be happy you know like you don't have to go to the fanciest school you don't have to have these sort of like ambitions to do certain things you can kind of just like be with your friends and be happy which is actually a really nice kind of message to give to teenagers which i don't mind Mm -hmm. but and a lot on honesty and sincerity too yeah exactly which you know i've never been one of those people that hate on the young people i like you know (laughs) i was like a crappy teenager i was very surly and terrible in a lot of ways but at the same time you know i had a fundamental kind of hope and optimism sort of embedded in that which is obviously the promise of youthfulness which I feel like this was sort of a celebration of carrying that on into adulthood that I liked. It was it was respectful of the teenage experience mm-hmm. in, the, in, in, in that way. Highest house, I spent the entire time Anna was talking trying to come up with a pun about how it's a building is <laughs> Roman about a building. Oh my god. Oh and nothing god. came to me. Um, wow. No, I, I think it's good. I think the idea of... Uh, it's essentially as a building's Roman. Um, it's a story of self-cultivation is the goal. It's about... Um, social mobility mm-hmm. very specifically mm-hmm. uh, about moving up the ranks and becoming more and more important and more and more prominent and that of course um, has some again kind of problematic endowment relationships because then we're we're, we're making a class argument um, but nonetheless I, I think a lot of moth's growth is about you know acquiring knowledge about making friends and making good choices is obsidian a metaphor for the teen id Maybe. I, I think he's more uh, a metaphor for the father and not mm. knowing whether it's a good father. Or no, a I, I feel like that is all about, let's frame everything in terms of appetite. Yeah. I'd almost say that sort of the sort of mm, developmental themes are almost pushed to the side in service of those other themes, mm. though, you know, like sort of the theme of, of, of social mobility and, and, and class and, and the slavery mm-hmm. themes are kind of the central thing. And it's sort of using progressing from a child into a teenager to, well, yeah. I don't know, a young adult, maybe well, at the end of this, like I, I, as, as supplementing, supplementing yeah, the other. Right. I'd agree with that. I um, would argue it's, it's just to take it a step further. Yeah. Now, I would argue it's conflation. Mm. Yeah, know, yeah. 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 Uh, his moth's maturation uh, is his climbing of the social ladder. It's very, very Charles Dickens yes yeah Yeah. i'd like to present my review of graven images religion in comic books and graphic novels a collection of essays edited by a david lewis and christine hoff cream by now you've probably wise to the trickery that i presented at the beginning of the podcast despite the religious punning both of carrie's books are less directly about organized religion than personal relationships with divine beings. That said, the questions of how humans access the numinous is certainly big enough to encompass both topics. And in the book's foreword, Doug Rushkoff argues that comics are ideally suited for such an endeavor, as reading the gutter is always already an act of faith. Kramer and Lewis continue in this vein for their introduction, arguing the tension between many religions and image makes comics in particular an interesting exploration of the tensions with issues of faith. The book consists of three sections. The first section's new interpretations features essays that look at how traditional religious themes are represented in comics. The second section, Response and Rebellion, features essays on works that subvert or extend religion in controversial directions. And the final section, Postmodern Religiosity, features essays investigating innovative ways of being religious in comics. Appendices follow, including a review blog post by Scott McLeod on R. Crumb's Book of Genesis Illustrated, Beth Davy Stofka's two-part profile of Gary Panter's Jimbo's Inferno, and the original program for the conference that inspired this collection. With 21 essays, there's far too many to talk about each one individually. Instead, I'll select a few I found personally interesting. In section one, Lawrence Roth explores a series of works looking critically into Judaism, including Eisner's Contract with God, Safar's The Rabbi's Cat, and Waldman's Megalit. He argues that these books do not demonstrate a heroic certainty, but establish the graphic novel as a mode for the Jewish writer, a place of cultural rediscovery and renegotiation. Without making an overly glib comparison between real religion and fantastic ones, the framing of A Contract with God as a work that takes religion and culture as negotiation rather than a pack set in stone, was very helpful for how I thought about Carrie's comics. In the same section, Anne's Blankenship's study of Treasure Chest of Fun and Fact, a didactic comic for Catholic children used in Catholic parochial schools that ran for over 500 issues, presents an excellent historical record. 
Blankenship is very convincing in her argument that the series reflects Catholic American concerns at the times, including their discrimination in the larger culture, issues regarding immigration, and the specter of communism. It makes a particularly interesting pairing with Kate Netzler's later essay in the second section, A Hesitant Embrace, in which she sketches out the subgenre of contemporary evangelical comics, which are caught between their reliance on traditional comic genres and their claim to stand apart from them as morally pure. While these essays tend to be broad in scope, others focus on a single author or work. These works depend somewhat on the author's or the reader's familiarity with the text in question, but if that familiarity is there, they're generally pretty rewarding. For example, the collection closes on Steve Junkite's examination of Blankets by Craig Thompson, and his argument utilizing Ergay's reading of Plato's Cave works really well for discussing the graphic novel's coming-of-age story and the approach to Christian erotic. Finally, I greatly appreciated the two essays in the third section by comics creators G. Willow Wilson and Mark Smiley. Wilson's essay in particular makes the intriguing argument that sacred knowledge is not generated by humans to understand the world, but itself generates that understanding. And this is an idea that reminds me very much of her Vertigo series, Air. I'd be fascinated to see if there's traces of that belief in Ms. Marvel as well. This collection comes out of a 2008 conference from the same name. It's a shame that the keynote speech by James Sturm, whose Unstable Molecules we discussed in episode 8, couldn't be reproduced here. However, beyond that, Graven Images combines the best qualities of an essay collection and a conference. Each essay has enough room to develop its argument without overstaying its welcome, and there's an exceptionally wide diversity of topics, including looks at Grant Morrison, Persepolis, Alan Moore, Underground Comics, Superheroes and Reincarnation, The Book of Mormon, and Miyazaki's Nausicaa. In terms of limitation, there's the expected one for a North American conference, that Christianity as a religion is somewhat overrepresented in the collection, and I personally would have liked to see more discussions of texts by female creators, though the essay on Satarpi and uh, the other by Wilson are certainly welcome. All in all, though, it's an impressive collection and particularly recommended for classroom use if you are studying one of the texts it focuses on. That's it for another episode of Three Panel Contrast. Let's briefly go over our recommendations. I would like to not recommend the recent Chip Zdarsky Daredevil series, which touches <laughs> on religion quite heavily. Just surprisingly unenjoyable series so far, and I keep thinking that'll be one of those moments where it was all a dream or something just to retcon it out of existence, but... Yeah, we, we, we're, we've been debating doing Daredevil as a focus for a future episode, so maybe we'll talk about that more. Hit us up in, in the comments. This is an exciting permutation of our recommendations, and I'm all for it. <laughs> for, for context, we should point recommendation. out, we're taping in Anna's office right now, and we are surrounded by Daredevil books, because Anna <laughs> is quite the expert on Daredevil. There are a lot of those. <laughs> I'd like to repeat the book I mentioned a little earlier uh, by and. This is a novel by Anne Leckie, who's probably best known for her sci-fi series, starting with Ancillary Justice. Uh, but she's also recently written a fantasy novel, Raven Tower, which pursues many of the same ideas of the relationships between gods and men, and try to figure out which Shakespeare play it's borrowing very heavily from. For my part, I will recommend um, Gail Simone's relatively recent run on Red Sonia. Um, just for being an interesting kind of counter reading to the character. We, we talked today about certain sort of um, um, gender tropes, sex tropes uh, in fantasy comics. Uh, so seeing a, a really talented female writer take a character who's drowning in those tropes mm -hmm. uh, and try to make something new and different and exciting um, out of them, I think was really interesting for me I'll, I'll second that recommendation that i've been wanting to check that stuff. one out and hey they finally fired brian singer from the movie so <laughs> maybe we're entering a golden era of red sonia representation all right everyone uh thank you for listening and a special thanks to saint jerome's college for supplying our recording equipment if you'd like to be kept up to date with new episodes and what we're reading either academically or for funsies follow us on twitter at three panel contrast that's the number three panel contrast all one word and if you've got any questions, comments, queries, or concerns, or any suggestions for future pairings, you can send them to that address as well. 
We'll be returning in a month's time with our next episode, where we look at the comics canon, with a discussion of Jimmy Corgan, The Smartest Kid on Earth by Chris Ware, and Mouse by Art Spiegelman. We'll also have a review of Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. We'll see you then. <laughs>